Second uh, Samuel chapter six can be found at page 304 in your pew Bibles. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baali Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perezazah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Abedadah, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Abedadah, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Abedadah and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Abedadah and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Abedadah to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes but my by the female servants of whom you have spoken. By them I shall be honored. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Thank you, Becky. Boys and girls who are registered for Story Keepers can head out. Ms. Terrell will be waiting for you in the parlor. 
As the kids head out, let me uh, lead us in prayer as we ask God's help thinking about the passage today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, There are parts of the Bible that we go to for comfort and encouragement. There are parts that we find challenging, and here is certainly a challenging chapter for us. And so we need your help uh, to understand it and to apply it in our lives. Uh, May this be a time where, indeed, we do encounter the living God as he speaks to us, as you speak to us through your word, no matter what point in our journey of faith we're at today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Steven Spielberg's classic film, uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, is, as uh, if you've seen it, a story of a race between Indiana Jones and the Nazis to find the ancient Old Testament relic, the Ark of the Covenant. Here's an interesting fact I learned this week. Uh, Originally, the film was supposed to be called Indiana Smith. (laughs) True story, 1973, George Lucas of Star Wars fame had written The Adventures of Indiana Smith, named after a dog he once owned. Lucas went to Steven Spielberg and asked him about making the Indiana Smith films. Spielberg apparently said yes, although I don't think that's a very good name. How about Indiana Jones? And the rest, as they say, is history. But if you've ever seen the film, you'll recall that the Ark of God in the film is a revered object held to possess great power. The Nazis want it because they believe it has magical, mystical powers, and having it will make their armies invincible. Jones wants it to stop them because he essentially believes the same thing. And over the course of the film, the Ark changes hands several times. But in the film's climax, the Nazis finally gain control of it and open it to release its awesome power. What they hoped would be the day of their greatest victory turns out to be their downfall, because rather than gaining an invincible uh, weapon, they instead release a nasty flock of death angels who promptly incinerate them. The last thing we see is the Ark being stored in a box in a US government warehouse, uh, waiting to be examined by their top men. Of course, Jones wins, the Nazis lose, But they both had one thing in common. They both presume that it's possible to keep God in a box and manage his powers for your own benefit. Now, back in 1 Samuel, chapters 4 to 7, there's a story concerning the Ark of the Covenant, the the Ark of God, that has some similarities to the Spielberg film. In those chapters, we read that the Israelites had lost in battle to the Philistines, and part of the Philistines' spoil was the Ark. Philistines viewed the Ark a bit like Indiana Jones and the Nazis, a lucky weapon whose powers, if they could use them, they could use them for their own advantage. However, through a series of strange events, beginning with the decapitation of the Philistine god Dagon, and culminating in an outbreak of tumors and mice and death, the Philistines decide that the Ark was more trouble than they could handle. And they therefore strapped it to an ox cart and pointed it back to Israel. And the oxen made it most of the way, but they take a pit stop at the house of Abinadab on a hill in the town of Kiriath-Jerim, or Baalai Judah, as it's called in our passage today, which was about a day's walk through the mountains west of Jerusalem. Abinadab, for his part, was in no rush to do anything with this volatile piece of furniture, so it sits in a back room in his house for at least 40 years, until now. 
until 2 Samuel 6. King David decides it's about time to bring the Ark of the Lord out of the shadows to where it belongs to the new city of David, to Jerusalem. However, as we just heard, the Ark is not going to make it to Jerusalem without some significant drama. Here's what I hope we're going to see today with some thanks to Mr. Beaver from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. God isn't safe, but he's good. God isn't safe, but he's good. And we'll think about the chapter just in two parts today. First of all, a death. Secondly, a dance. First of all, then, a death. Referenced already the start of the story, but let's look how the narrator begins it. Verses 1 to 2, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, while Uzzah and David are going to be the prominent ones in this story, the narrator wants us to never lose sight of the fact that there's something else in this chapter that really is the star, and that's the ark. He mentions the ark 13 times in this chapter just to help our minds not to wander from its central role. The ark is referred to in a a few different ways, but its fullest title is provided for us here in verse 2. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And that description starts to scratch the surface of the ark's significance. From a physical perspective, the ark was relatively small, but most impressive. It was a gold-plated wooden box, approximately four feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet, constructed in the days of Moses according to God's at instructions. It was fitted with gold, four golden rings through which gold-plated wooden poles were placed by which it was to be carried. On top of the ark was a pure gold cover with, a solid, with solid gold cherub at either end. And so the ark, as described in, the, in verse 2, served as something of a footstool of God, the throne of God where his feet would rest on earth metaphorically as he dwelt in the heavens. And then inside the ark, uh, was, uh, th- were three items. There were the stone tablets that Moses had delivered to the people from Mount Sinai. There was a jar of manna from the wilderness years of wandering. And there was Aaron's staff that had budded, as described in Numbers 17. And these objects were the continuing reminders that God was at work amongst his people. He had commanded them, hence the tablets. He had provided for them, hence the manna. And he had saved them, hence the rod. And as such, the ark wasn't therefore a piece of of memorabilia, but a display of what was always going on and what was still going on. It was a portable symbol of God's very presence among his people. That's why it's also referred to here as the ark of the covenant. It represented God's promises to his people and their consequential obligations, a relationship summed up as a covenant. Now, when you realize the central significance, therefore, of the ark, you start to understand what a travesty it was that it had been sitting out of sight in the middle of nowhere in the home of Abinadab for over 40 years. And David, to his credit, recognizes the travesty and so seeks to make amends by commanding that the ark be brought to Jerusalem. He wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem to show the people who the real king is because David understands he's not the real king, the Lord is the real king. 
Before we look at what happens, it's worth just setting this chapter in the context of the previous chapter. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, points out that while the defeating of the Jebusites and the Philistines in chapter 5 that we looked at last week is not unimportant, the fact that chapter 6 comes right on the heels of chapter 5 suggests that God's people are not sustained merely by crises, that they don't thrive by just knocking off the Philistines of this world, but ultimately by seeking God's face. Davis writes this, the evangelical church easily loses sight of this. We can always dredge up more adrenaline because of the latest moral or ethical or social or cultural or political emergency. Crises may stimulate us to action, but they do not sustain life. The church must never look to the latest cause for her life. We cannot ignore the enemies outside the city of God, but we must not be absorbed by them. The real question is not who is against us, but who is among us. Well, the narrator then describes the start of the journey of the ark to Jerusalem, verses 3 to 5. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and, and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So just imagine the scene. 30,000 people crammed into Kiriath-Jerim, more crowded than Kenneth Square during the Mushroom Festival. So many people. And the time comes for the procession to begin. Up front is the ark on a new cart being guided by the sons or possibly the grandsons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio, and then behind followed David and his retinue of thousands who had brought out just about every musical instrument that they had on hand. And this full-on worship service is going on as the procession winds up and down and round mountain tracks along the top of the Judean mountain ridge on its journey east. It's a mount, moment of, of, of sheer joy, a moment as it's read that you just like to have frozen in time, and in hindsight, perhaps the moment you'd just like the story to stop, because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, tragedy strikes. Verses 6 to 7, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, it surely took a moment or two for everyone at the front of the procession to realize what had happened, and then in a slow wave from the front to the back for the crowd to realize and for the dancing and the music to peter out. And now all eyes that could see him were fixed on Uzzah, on the ground writhing, twitching, then motionless, and the party's over. Because it doesn't matter what worship tradition or denomination you're from, the, the rule is always the same. When someone drops dead in a worship service, the worship service is over. Now, I probably don't have to tell you that people have used this story as an example of what they hate about Christianity, what they hate about the Bible. People will say, you know, we need to get beyond this kind of thing, a God who's capricious, a God who's seemingly vindictive. We need a God of love, not this kind of thing. But even those of us who do love God and who do love the Bible struggle with this story too. I picked up one of my second Samuel commentaries this week and I noticed a sheet of paper 
uh, stuck inside the back flap. It turned out to be a note written by one of you from 2012, when, as uh, some of you may recall, we were reading through the Bible together over a two-year period, and every, every quarter we would have a question and answer time on what we'd read the previous three months. Well, in that quarter, we'd obviously been reading 2 Samuel, and here was the comment and question written on that sheet of paper. Quote, touching the ark was forbidden by God, but Uzzah's actions were, was, action was probably a quick reaction to help. I know we must do what God commands, but I would probably have reached out to support the, that ark from falling also, and I respect God's commands. Some things we know for sure we aren't supposed to do, but there are times when our actions seem right at the moment. How does this incident translate to today's world? Now we get what is written here, right? I mean, sure, Uzzah broke some rules, but but what he did was pure instinct. It's what any of us would do. You know, a lamp's about to fall over in your living room and you instinctively put your hand out to, to stop it falling. Or perhaps more pertinently, you're taking something out of the oven with, with one oven mitt and it turns out that the dish is heavier than you anticipated. And so the cerebellum part of your brain takes over, not the thinking part of your brain, but the reactionary part of your brain and you automatically grab the other end of the dish with your other hand and you burn yourself. I mean, it's, it's instinctual and accidents happen, right? And isn't God supposed to look at the heart? I mean, Uzzah seems sincere. He seemed filled with devotion. If you and I feel angry or upset about what happens here, we're not the only one because we read in verse 8, David was very angry too. Neither he nor we get it. The Uzzah story just seems to go completely against the grain of human preferences. In other words, no one would ever have invented a God like this. You know, if we were developing a blueprint for how to win friends and influence people, persuade people, anyone who says that the God of the Bible is merely a projection of our wish fulfillment clearly has not read the Bible and certainly hasn't read this chapter. But here's, here's the thing. Accidents do happen. But this really wasn't an accident. The amazing thing was that God hadn't actually intervened prior to this point when he does, because God had given clear instructions as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported back in Exodus 35, sorry, 25, Numbers 4. And the rules could be pretty easily summarized succinctly this way. No touch, no look, no cart. The priests were to cover the Ark after which priests of one particular clan were to use poles that they slipped through the four rings so that their hands would never touch the ark, lest they die, God said. I mean, God gave that warning. Clearly, God didn't want them to die. Hence, the warning, his kindness was written all over the warning. But here are Uzzah and Ahio, who have lived with the ark in their home for decades, who surely knew what God's commands with regard to the ark were, they figure that, well, we don't need poles. It obviously heard that when the Philistines had trans transported the ark back to Israel in 1 Samuel 4-7, they'd used an ox cart. Well, if it was good enough for the Philistines, it's good enough for us. We'll use an ox cart too. In fact, it's such a special occasion, we'll get a new ox cart. But God had said, no touch, no look, no cart. And Uzzah had broken all three of the rules. God's strike here, therefore, was hardly arbitrary or capricious. Now that said, I think there are two deeper reasons for God's severe 
but just judgment here. And the first is this. Uzzah wanted to put God into a box. He wants a God who could be managed, but discovers that it's fatal to attempt to take charge of God. My, my guess is that Uzzah's reflexive act wasn't just a mistake of the moment. It was an act that demonstrated an attitude towards God that had been developed over decades in a home that happened to house the Ark of God. Uzzah figured it was up to him to keep God safe from the mud and the dust of the world. He domesticated God. A question from the 2012 question and answer session asked, how does this incident translate to today's world? Well, here's one way. Don't ever think that you can domesticate God, that you can manage God, that you can put God into a box. If you've ever seen the film The Stepford Wives, you'll recall how the husbands in that film devise a way so that their wives can never contradict them, but always agree with them. And some of us try to make God a Stepford God. The God we believe in is made in our image and fits in a nicely constructed box we've made for him. And surprise, surprise, this God never contradicts us, never disagrees with us. And one clue you might have constructed a Stepford God is if you hear yourself ever saying, well, well, the God I believe in would never dot, dot, dot. The scene with Uzzah reminds us what a preposterous notion that is. The God of the Bible doesn't fit in any kind of box that we might try to squeeze him into. But secondly, God's severe judgment here is to help us understand the seriousness of our sin. Uzzah wasn't the only one involved in this flawed worship service. But what set him apart and what brought God to make Uzzah something of an object lesson for everybody else was the touch. So why was the touch so significant? Well, Uzzah's touch represented a failure to recognize his own sinfulness. Uzzah saw the ark heading towards the dirt, and he reached out because he assumed that his hand was less dirty than the ground. And again, most of us would have instinctively done the same thing. But here's the thing. The earth had never committed the blasphemy we've committed of rejecting God's authority in our lives. The earth had never willfully rebelled against its creator. The earth had always obeyed the commands of God. So the dirt on the ground in that sense could never have polluted the ark. But the touch of a sinful person definitely could. Now, we don't like to focus on our sin. We don't like to be reminded that we're sinners, but until we actually admit our sin and repent of our sin, it remains this inescapable, unavoidable barrier between us and God. Sin is deadly serious because it separates us from the God who made us, the God who wants a relationship with us. And we don't want to have to hear about our sin, and so God has to lovingly beat it into our heads. And one of God's favorite ways in the Old Testament was through visual aids for slow learners. <laughs> and so, my friends, if you take nothing away else away from the scene of Uzzah's death, remember at least its lesson about the seriousness of sin. Well, that brings us then, secondly, to the dance. After the death of Uzzah, uh, David is not only angry at God for what he has done, he's also afraid. Look at verses 9 to 10. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now you have to feel for Obed-Edom as this incident begins. You know, I mean, hey, sorry, Obi, this ark seems way too dangerous to bring into the city, so we just thought we'd keep it in your house instead for a while. You know, it's a bit like someone coming to your front door and announcing they're going to be putting in a toxic waste dump in your back garden. Are you okay with that? This was not intended as a gift. And for all we know, Obed-Edom said, well, over my dead body. And the Israelites said, well, yeah, probably. But, uh, but they left it with him. But then look at verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. To the surprise of everybody, and I'm sure particularly David, the ark's presence in the house of Obed-Edom brings only blessing. I think this is actually the hinge verse in the chapter, maybe the key verse in the whole chapter. That God wants David to understand that his true intent via the ark is not to destroy the people, it's to bless them. Wednesday night at uh, Theology on Tap, we were looking at some verses from Isaiah 55, um, verses that I'm sure are familiar to some of you. Verses uh, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, those verses are often quoted, in fact, I know I've quoted them myself this way, to refer to when God does things that we just don't quite understand, when life takes an unexpected and difficult turn that we weren't anticipating. I mean, we could even say these verses might apply to what's happening here with us. You know, God's ways are just not our ways. But what's particularly interesting in the context of Isaiah 55 is, is that God's saying something a little different to that. Because immediately prior to these verses, we read this, Isaiah 55, 6 to 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, listen, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In what way it's our God's thoughts, not our thoughts, and his ways, not our thoughts, are our ways? It's in his compassion to the wicked. It's in his forgiveness to sinners. In other words, that's God's default mode towards us. It's not to curse. It's not to destroy. It's to bless. So that what God did to Obed-Edom when the ark was in his house was what the Puritans would have called God's natural work. And what happened to Uzzah was what the Puritans would have called God's strange work. But the one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives just with this a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that he's going to achieve through suffering and pain in our life. It's for a greater good, I think, in the end that he strikes down Uzzah. But still, something recoils within God in sending the affliction. But when God comes to show mercy... When God seeks to show grace, when God wants to bless, the Bible says he does that with his whole heart. There's nothing in God that's against doing that. There's no reluctance on God's part to bringing blessing. And David seems to now get that, that God's ultimate desire here is not not to destroy but to bless. So verses 12 to 15. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. There's just this new awe, this new trembling trust demonstrated as the procession resumes. Notice now the ark isn't being carried on an ox cart, but by people, that is by the priests who are supposed to carry it. And notice that after the very first six steps of the journey, everyone just stops. Not because someone's been zapped dead this time, but because a sacrifice was to be made to the Lord, humbly acknowledging their sin. And then we're told David danced. He danced before the Lord with all his might. And we might not actually take that much notice of David's dancing, except we then read that someone took much exception to David's dancing. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, ironically, in happier days, soon after David and Michal were married, their relationship involved another window. First Samuel 19, Michal let David down out of a window in order that he might escape the murderous threats of Michal's father, Saul. But this window scene in 2 Samuel 6 brings a very different stage in their marriage. Michal despises David for his dancing, for his unself-conscious behavior. This passage, I don't think, is so much about the place of dancing in worship as some might want to make it. It's about who our audience in life ultimately is. Because for Michal, life was all about one's reputation before other people. In her mind, David ought to have done what other kings do surrounding himself with pomp and circumstance, organizing a religion that made him look important and kingly. We call it also put God in a box, where his purpose, as far as she was concerned, was to serve as a social amenity and a political backer. She would have probably been very comfortable walking beside the ark with those stately, proper, careful, and spiritually dead. The Michals of the world hate the Davids of the world because the Davids of the world live with an audience of one, of God himself. So that David here possesses this beautiful unself-consciousness because of his God-consciousness. He's so conscious of the Lord's majesty, he thinks nothing of his own majesty. He fears the Lord such that he does not fear what other people think of him. And that's what happens in our lives when the gospel comes into our lives. It's not that you think less of yourself or more of yourself. It's that you think of yourself less. That's part of the importance of being here every Sunday. Indeed, any of our worship practices through the week, doing daily prayer project or whatever we might use. Listen to how Eugene Peterson expresses the importance of worship as practiced by David here. He says, Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is the time and place that we design for deliberate attentiveness to God, not because he's confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, 
we have no chance of attending to him at all at other times and in other places. Michal mocked David, but David didn't care. David knew that as the early church father Irenaeus put it, the glory of God is a human fully alive. And David was alive. He'd learned that it's death to try to manage God, but it's life with a capital L to give the reins of our lives to God. And so he danced. But let me, let me close with this. In, in the Indiana Jones film, the quest, of course, is to find the Ark of the Covenant. But from the biblical writer's perspective, they, a day would come when that would no longer be necessary. The prophet Jeremiah pretty much said that. Look at uh, Jeremiah 3.16. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Why would the Ark of the Covenant not be missed? It would not be missed because the one to whom the Ark was pointing had come. Remember how I said earlier that the Ark of the Covenant was this portable symbol of God's presence with his people, with its reminders of his commands and his provision and his salvation? Well, the Ark would no longer be necessary once the, the living Ark, the living temple, had arrived. The one who would come and be God's presence himself, Emmanuel, God with us. The one who is the word made flesh. The one who provides for all our needs. And the one who through his death and resurrection has done absolutely everything necessary for our salvation. We don't have to search for the ark anymore because we have the living ark. The Lord Jesus himself whose spirit now lives within us so that the ark goes with us everywhere we go. And if you think that the Ark of the Covenant could bring David to such a place of total attentiveness to God in worship, how much more should the living Ark, the Lord Jesus himself, bring us to such a consciousness and delight in God as well? Lucy asked, is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in awe before you for who you are, for your holiness, your separateness, the fact that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, because you are so gracious. You are so forgiving. You are so desirous and prone to seek to bless. And yet you call us your children. You call us your family. You draw us into a relationship with yourself. May we never take you for granted. May we never try to fit you in a box. May we seek to be obedient to you because yours are the ways of life. Holy God, we pray in Jesus, our true ark's name. Amen.